Welcome to the Art of the Christian Ninja Sermon Podcast with Pastor Al Desjardins, a ministry dedicated to helping you find the tools and inspiration you need to pursue a deeper, consistent, and more meaningful relationship with God. Thank you for listening, and now, here's this week's message. me to John chapter 4 verses 1 to 30. We'll go back into the story of Jesus and the good and the Samaritan woman. I keep saying and the good Samaritan woman. That's two different stories. Jesus and the Samaritan woman. John chapter 4. Studied a little bit last week. We're going to get through it today. Let's read together. It says, now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, Although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, You have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water, so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You're right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one that you have now is not your husband. What you've said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive you are a prophet. Our, our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know the Messiah is coming. He who is called the Christ, when he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you and he. Then Jesus said, "Then just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman. But no one said, what do you seek, or why are you talking to her? So the woman left her jar and went away into the town and said to the people, 
Come, see the man who told me all I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of town and were coming to him. Now, I already kind of did the big intro to the story last week. We talked about that, so I won't go over it again. But I want you to remember that we are all the Samaritan woman. That was the point last week. I want you to consider the outline of the story again and how much it parallels our life, our own lives, our own testimonies, and all the testimonies of people who meet Jesus. For example, oh, that is the wrong PowerPoint. Can you grab the stick, go to the other PowerPoint? That would be great. Uh, I don't know how that, hold on. One sec. Go flip forward. There you go. Okay, no, that's good. I just left a bunch of slides in there. Okay, leave it. Verse uh, 1 to 9. If you look at your Bibles, verses 1 to 9, we meet the Samaritan woman. Uh, she's a sinner. She's despised. She's rejected. She's humiliated. She's ashamed. She's afraid. And when we're honest with ourselves, that's us. But Jesus approaches her anyway. We talked about that last week. I won't go over the point again. But look at verses 10 to 14. The Samaritan woman shows how ignorant she is about Jesus, how confused she is about what he's offering her, and is totally unaware of a reality beyond her comprehension. She's just not getting it. And yet, even though she's ignorant, even though she's confused, even though she's guilty, she's also somehow argumentative with Jesus. She doesn't know what she's talking about. She doesn't know what he's talking about. And yet she's still arguing. That's us. And yet Jesus, instead of becoming impatient with her, instead of becoming angry with her, offers her life and truth. He could have just walked away. Yeah, you're not getting it. But instead he offers her life and truth. That is grace. That is mercy. Undeserved merit. Undeserved favor. He offers, for anyone humble enough to admit that they don't know it all, admit their ignorance, and trust what he's saying, he gives them access to a brand new existence, a total reframing of their reality, a, a never-ending spring of eternal life. He offers that to people who are willing to trust him. She had come down for water. Jesus was there to change her life. Look at what it says. It says, if you knew... Right? If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked Him and He would have given you living water. If you knew. But here's the thing. We've talked about this lots before. She didn't know. We don't know. She couldn't know. We can't know until Jesus shines light into our souls. Until Jesus explains it to us. We've talked about that before. But... If sitting here today, you were able to see and understand and able to climb out of your darkness into the light and actually see reality from God's perspective, to be able to see things the way Jesus sees things, uh, to know what God expects, to, to know who Jesus really is, to, to know who you are to Him, you would be begging Jesus right now for wisdom, truth, salvation, living water. But so often... We don't see. We're like we are the Samaritan woman. And in our ignorance, in our stubbornness, in our darkness, 
We argue with the creator of the universe instead. Now, you get this. Uh, hopefully you understand this. Now, if you, you've been, I've been, we've all been the Samaritan woman in that ignorance and yet argumentative state. Right? You look back at your life, those of you who are saved, those of you who have been down the road a little bit in your salvation, how many times do you look back and see that God was telling you something, showing you something, preparing you for something. The Holy Spirit was speaking to you. There was warnings to you. There was, there was, he was trying to teach you something. But you, for too long, didn't get it. You refused to listen. You refused to obey. You stayed ignorant. You stayed thick. You stayed stubborn. And you were arguing with God about what He was trying to do that you completely didn't understand. God's voice couldn't penetrate because your voice was busy talking. And you were just not getting it. If you look back on that, and hopefully you've had that experience, and I know we all have, at least retroactively, you know. You look back, once Jesus opens your eyes, you get a little further down the road, he opens your eyes, you see, you realize that the stuff you were praying for, the conversations you were having with other believers or whatever, was just you making excuses to try to stay in your sin. You being afraid to go where God wanted you to go. You arguing with Jesus about things you didn't even come close to understanding. And now in retrospect, you wish you would have seen. You wish you would have trusted. You wish you would have obeyed far sooner. How many people have been saved later in their life and they look back and they go, what a waste. What a waste. I wish I would have known. I wish I would have seen. I wish I would have listened sooner. You wish you would have just shut up, trusted what God was saying, obeyed immediately. Instead of kicking against the goads, as they call it, and putting yourself through more misery until your life blew up and God forced you into humiliation, you wish you just would have believed what Jesus was trying to tell you in the first place and trust what he was doing. You had that experience? I have. I can hear Jesus saying to each one of us, if you only knew the gift of God standing before you, the reality of your situation, if you could only just see what's really going on, you would be acting and speaking and praying and living and spending and working so much differently than you are right now. If you could just see, if you only knew. How I wish and pray that every person here would have the discernment to see what's really going on in your life, in your church, and among those you love. I pray for that every day. For, for all of us. For you, for me, for my family. For discernment. To see with God's eyes what's really going on. How it's really going on. And to finally be humble enough, wise enough, godly enough to see truth, to see the sin, to see the gifts, to see the stagnant water in our lives that's poisoning us, to see the reality of Jesus standing before you, and to hear the truth of what He's saying. And then beg Him for living water instead. That's what I want for you. But boy, it requires humility. In verses 15 to 26, we see how short-sighted the, Amer the Samaritan woman is. Just leave the remote alone now. Okay, gotcha. Verses 15 to 26, we see how short-sighted the Samaritan woman is. What does she say? Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. 
That's her response, right? Jesus gives her like helicopter view of the entirety of the salvation plan. <laughs> you know, if you would, if you knew who was talking to you, 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 you know, and she's like, great, give me that water so I don't have to be thirsty anymore. Then I don't have to come here and draw water in the middle of the afternoon. That's what we do. She grasps a little bit of what Jesus is saying. She, she gets a little peek of light. She's a little revelation of who's really standing in front of her, that he knows something she doesn't know, that, that at least there, there's something there that she, you know, is bigger than her. But then she does exactly what we all do when we get a taste of reality, the reality of God's existence. What's our first instinct? If you think back to when you got saved, when you were first coming to God, your first instinct, when you get a peak of Jesus' power, whether you're in church or a sermon or you see him at work in a friend or you read a biography, you watch a movie, someone tells you, you get a little peek and something touches you. Jesus might be what I'm looking for. So we come to Jesus and we do exactly what she did. We ask him to solve our immediate problems, our felt need. Okay, Jesus, I'll tell you what I need. I need more money, I need a better family, I need a more fulfilling job, a really good girlfriend or boyfriend or spouse, an inspirational mess, uh, mission, a roadmap of my future, and I need some answers to some very complicated questions so I can look smart in front of people, okay? That's what I need. All the while, we're evading, denying, making excuses for the real actual problem. The curse of and our love of sin. That's destroying our souls. That is tainting our every action. That is causing us to be separated from God. To cause us to be under His wrath, condemned to hell. That's the real problem. How many of us would trade our souls, trade a real walk with Jesus, with all the risks and dangers and sufferings that come with it, for a little more comfort? A little more respect. A little more health. A little more money a little less trouble. And yet that's what we do all the time. When we come to God and we ask for superficial solutions to our far deeper spiritual problems. That's what she's doing. But how does Jesus respond? How does He respond to her superficial level understanding and her asking for this, you know, very shallow thing. He responds by showing her the real problem. By confronting her with the real problem. By making her see her sin. Show me your husband. Jesus responds to her superficiality, the short-sightedness of her request, by confronting her with reality. That's what He does with us. That's why a lot of people avoid the Bible. That's why they avoid daily prayer. That's why they avoid any prayer. That's why they avoid Christian counseling. That's why they avoid submitting to elders. That's why they avoid committing to a church. Because when they get close to the Bible, when they close their eyes to pray, when they talk to other Christians, when they listen to a sermon, when they start serving a body of believers, their superficiality starts to show, their real sins start to come up, and they start to feel guilt, fear, Guilt, 
or shame, anger. So they run from it. Put the Bible back on the shelf. Don't feel like going to church this week. Maybe I won't call Christians anymore. I should probably go somewhere else that doesn't make me feel so guilty. Find a better book. That's the response. Jesus says, show me your husband. They say, nah. And as they run, they call themselves Christians. But their spiritual life remains superficial and powerless because they won't deal with the real problem. But that's not what Jesus wants. Jesus wants us to see us how we really are, how God sees us, how serious our sins are, to realize we don't need comfort from our troubles. We need a spiritual resurrection, a complete renewal, a a total overhaul of our entire being. He wants us to break, to fall on our knees, to see how desperate our situation really is because He loves us and He knows the only time we're going to call out for Him to save us is when we figured out how desperate we really are. It would be terribly unloving to give you more money, more health, but leave you damned and a slave to hell. But so many of us in our superficiality, our requests, want the comfort at the expense of damnation, at the expense of remaining a slave. Which is why Jesus keeps confronting you with it. Guilt, shame, fear, anger. Oh, I better lean into it, not away. Then, when you lean into it a little bit, you finally start to realize your problem. You see yourself for the first time. You really see yourself for the first time. If you're a Christian, you've had this experience. You look at you and you go, oh, I'm not as great as I thought I was. You feel the weight of the curse of sin your powerlessness against it as He shows you a piece of the darkness inside of you, your heart cries out with the words of the Samaritan woman, give me that. That's what I need. Show me where I can find that kind of solution. You look down in, that, in those verses, she goes from, uh, from show me that water, where can I be thirsty, to the Christ is coming. That's her heart changing. She's saying, I I, I wish someone would come and fix that deeper problem. I wish someone greater than me, someone stronger than me, someone more loving than me, who just sees how messed up I really am and loves me anyway, would come and save me. I want someone who would see how much trouble I'm in and not run away like everyone seems to do, but actually run towards me. I wish there was someone who doesn't want anything from me, who isn't trying to manipulate me, who has no ulterior motives but just wants to help me because they're kind and merciful. Where is the Christ? Where is the Messiah? The only one who can somehow miraculously save me from the guilt, shame, fear, anger, the wrath of God against my soul who I keep offending over and over and over and I can't stop and I live in that way. I wish... That person would come. I need them so much. And Jesus says to her, and He says to you, I who speak to you am He. 
That person you're begging to meet, begging to see, begging to know, that's me. He says, I'm right here. I will do that. I offer salvation freely to all who ask, to all who trust, to all who will turn from their sin and follow me. I will show you true worship. I will give you a new spirit. I will give you access to the truth. I will give you a direct connection to God. But you have to give up your sin and do things my way. My way is better. He speaks the words to us in Matthew 11, 27-30. He says, All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. That's not talking about work. That's talking about sin. The weight of sin. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. In verses 27 to 28, look at verses 27 to 28. We see the kind of reaction that people are going to have if they see you with Jesus. Right? It clicks. You want to know the Christ. You recognize your sin. You come to Jesus. People are going to see you with Him. Once you give your life to Jesus, the people you know, your friends, your family, your workmates, your community, even your enemies, are going to marvel the way the disciples did. Marvel at how strange and incredible and weird and countercultural you are now that you've met Jesus Now, the disciples don't confront her. They don't confront Jesus, but that's only because it's Jesus. Anyone else would have been called out for talking to a woman. Any woman would have been told to get lost. What are you doing here? Why are you talking to a man? You're a Samaritan. Get out of here. The rabbi would have been uh, reported to the Sanhedrin publicly shamed. That's how it would have went down if it wasn't Jesus and his disciples. Here's the thing. If you walk with Jesus, and I mean really walk with Jesus, people are going to react. Some people are going to react the way you react when you smell a good smell. Right? You walk into someone's house, and they're baking cookies, and you're like, wah, everything just got better. My whole life just brightened right up because I smelled that, right? Your presence will be like that to them because they smell Jesus on you. They want to know what makes you different. Why? Why are you different? Why do? You, why? Why does your presence feel, smell? Why is it different? Some are going to see that change in you. They're going to wonder why, and then you're going to have a chance to share your testimony and give the glory to Jesus and say, "Listen, it's not me. I'm just hanging around with someone who smells better than me. That's it." But others are going to get upset. They'll question Jesus' motives. They'll argue about how foolish and naive you are. They'll condemn you for being part of a bunch of duped, stupid weirdos who keep giving their money for no reason. They'll condemn you for submitting yourself to an ancient book in an unpopular religion. You'll change for the better. The light of Jesus taking over your decisions, taking over your home, taking over your habits. And they'll start to get mad about what your life looks like now. 
They'll complain about how much you've changed. They'll worry about your priorities. They'll become offended by the effect Jesus has on you. This is a real thing that happens all the time. It's actually a warning you get if you go through addictions counseling. You go into a, a, a recovery center, and like they're going to be telling you the whole time, when you go home, your friends are going to be mad at you. The people you hang around are going to be upset with you because you're no longer like them. They're going to try to pull you back. It's called homeostasis. They want to pull you back to where you were because it's comfortable for them. It's similar when you get saved. But ten times worse because demons are involved. And the thing is, it doesn't get any better the longer you follow Jesus. You think, well, okay, once everybody gets used to this, you know, they'll still leave me alone. No. The more you follow him, the more opposition you'll face. That's why so many people refuse to change. Why so many Christians look exactly like their friends, talk exactly like their non-Christian friends, go to the places exactly where their non-Christian friends go, watch the same shows, read the same books, go to the same internet pages as their, their non-Christian friends, because they do not want to look different. It gets them in trouble. That's why they refuse to obey when Jesus says, do this. Refuse to let Jesus transform them into a new creature because every time he, they, they let them, hit them in to, to let Jesus do what he wants to do, people get upset. Gets them in trouble. So they try to live with one foot in Christianity and one foot in the world. But that's impossible. Because your religion, your spirit, your life will get corrupted. It's like trying to live with one cup full of water and one cup full of poison. And what's strange, what's really strange about those people is that they will often champion how much it's better to compromise. How much better it is. And then invite you to do the same. It's so much easier if you just watch the shows. Then you can have conversations that people have. So much easier if you just avoid change. It's just so much easier if you just watch what we watch, say what we say, do what we do. You know, It's so much easier if you just take the promotion when you can take the promotion. It's so much easier if you just compromise on your taxes and compromise in your life. It's just so much easier. That's what I do. And I, I go to church. Jesus loves me. I sing every week. But if you follow Jesus, if you actually listen to what He says, you actually know His Word, you actually submit to His Word, that He is the way, the truth, the life, and you change, it's going to affect every relationship you have. You know this. You know this inherently. You've experienced this. Just on a surface level, imagine. You know what it's like to bring Jesus' name into a conversation, right? You know that feeling? Just drop the J word in any other way other than profanity, and immediately the air in the room changes, right? Immediately the air in the room changes. Why? Because his name has power. How much more will a life completely changed by Jesus affect those around him? If his name in conversation changes the air in the room, how much more a soul changed by him? You 
In verses uh, 28 to 29, we see the Samaritan woman immediately used by Jesus to spread the gospel to people around her. Immediately used. Because that's the natural progression for all Christians. Right? I don't know what I'm talking about. I don't know who Jesus is. Jesus tells us something. We go, oh, that's interesting. Can you solve all my problems? He goes, well, yes, but no. Here's your real problem. You go, oh, right, okay. You submit, you change. Your heart changes, your priorities change, your, your life changes. And Jesus goes, all right, now I can work with you. I got a mission. That's how it works for everybody. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 to 10. I want you to see this. Keep your thumb in John, though. Keep your thumb in John. Ephesians 2, 8 to 10. We love this verse. Generally, we stop at verse 9, but we shouldn't. It says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. You see, we're not saved by our good works. We're saved unto good works. Jesus is planting a vineyard. God is a vine dresser. His goal is to make fruit. Right? We just read the parable of the sower. His goal is to make fruit. He's not planting a pine forest. He's planting a fruit tree. That's why the love of God, the salvation of your soul, is not merely a gift for you. We live in a very individualistic culture. I've talked about that before. We start to think that maybe our relationship with God is individualistic. It's not. You are saved to be in community. You are saved to a community of faith. Your gift, the salvation of your soul, is meant to be shared. You can love people because you're now loved by Jesus. People you never loved before. You forgive people because Jesus forgave you. You serve people because Jesus serves you. You're honest with people because Jesus is always honest with you. You confront sin because Jesus hates sin. It cost Him His life. You join a church. You love your church. You commit to your church because Jesus has made you a part of His family and He gave you a gift to serve His people. And you cannot obey Him if you are not part of a church. You give your tithes. You give your offerings generously, joyfully, sacrificially, obediently, regularly because Jesus has given you so much. Because Jesus is your provider and you want to obey and trust Jesus in all areas of your life. Whether you accept it or not, the moment you were saved, you were put on a mission. For the Samaritan woman, it was like, quick, right? We all want to go to a class and, you know, get a bunch of extra training before we do anything, say anything. You know, I don't know, I might get it wrong. No, you're on a mission right now to show and tell the people closest to you what Jesus has done in your life, what, is do, what he's doing in your life, and about all the amazing, different, unique power that he has by speaking and living his way. And I don't mean a mission, you know, out there 
somewhere. I don't mean people who are called as missionaries or pastors or teachers. I mean every single believer, that includes everyone here who believes in Jesus as their Lord and Savior, has been given a mission to share Jesus with everyone around them through words and actions. Everyone. There's a gift of evangelism, but we're all called to be evangelists. Consider for a moment. Just consider for a moment who the Samaritan woman really was. Okay? Think of all the excuses you've got running through your head right now. Why? I don't know about that. Not me. Okay. You think the Samaritan woman is more qualified than you? She was socially rejected, ostracized, mocked, derided, infamous in town for her lifestyle and sin. Whether her husbands had died or had all divorced her, she would have been considered a woman under a curse. Her current lifestyle, living with a man she's not married to, was sinful and shameful. No one should have listened to her ranting and raving and pleading about coming out to the well in the middle of the hot afternoon to see some Jewish stranger who she thinks is a prophet. Maybe even the Christ. Especially a group of Samaritans. But God had prepared their hearts in advance to listen. He just required her to speak. Just have the courage to speak. If you look down at verses 35 to 38, we're going to talk about that next week, but if you look down there, you'll see Jesus talking about how the fields are white for harvest. And all she needed to do was start reaping things she did not sow. In other words, all she had to do was open her mouth, have the courage to speak, and she would see that God had already done all the work of tilling and sowing and watering and preparing the hearts of the people in her hometown to come to Jesus. He'd already done the work. All she had to do was walk out there and grab the fruit. He still works like that. You can't convert anyone. God does. All He requires of you is the courage to open your mouth and speak. And we see in verse 39, the harvest was huge. Many people. Now why? Why did so many people get saved? Was it because she was such a good speaker? No. Was it because she knew all the answers? Definitely no. Was it because she was so good at apologetics? No. Was it because she had such a good reputation? People wanted a life like hers. No. Was it because she was wealthy and successful? No. Was it because she had so much experience in evangelism and telling people that? No. Was it because people trusted her? No. Then why did so many people get saved? The only thing that had changed was that she met Jesus and was willing to tell people what He had done for her. And that's all you're responsible for. All you're responsible to do is talk about what Jesus has done for you. You don't need a million answers to every science and history and philosophy question that they're going to throw into your lap. No. All you're responsible for is to tell your story, your testimony, your perspective on what Jesus has done. 
Let God do all the work. Let the Spirit of God do all the work. All you're responsible for is your story. And you'll see that's more than enough to save souls. Let me conclude with this. As you read the Bible, as you read the Gospel of John, I want you to look to see how Jesus treats people. And I want you to see yourself in the people he's interacting with. Humble yourself and see you're the Samaritan woman. You are the Pharisee. You're the lame, the sick, the hungry. You're the one grumbling. You're the one who's amazed and perplexed and obedient, but desperate, like the disciples. You are the adulterous woman. You are the man born blind. See yourself. But more than that, see the amazingly deep, personal, genuine love that Jesus has for those people and that he has for you. And then as you see that, as you feel that, as you begin to understand that, respond accordingly. With thanksgiving, worship, humility, obedience. If you'd like to know more about us, check us out at artofthechristianninja.com where you'll find more messages, free books, and all of Pastor Al's social media links. If you appreciate this message, please consider sharing it with your friends. If you want to keep these blogs and podcasts coming, consider helping out financially by supporting us through our new Patreon page. You can find the link on the website. Pastor Al Desjardins speaks at Beckwith Baptist Church in Carleton Place, Ontario, Canada. If you have any questions, want to learn more, or just see what Pastor Al is up to, head over to artofthechristianninja.com. While you're there, hit the subscribe button, use the search bar to find lots of other topics, watch some sermon videos, and even download all of Pastor Al's books for free. Thank you so much for listening, and have a blessed week.